You're listening to the Caroline Springs Anglican Podcast. So week by week, we're going to be tracking just a couple or a few verses at a time, but uh, each week I'll also try and do a very quick um, recap of the week that's come before. That's not an excuse for you to skip every other week and just catch up in the five minutes before the next message. And it's not even, I said to the people this morning, it's not even enough just to listen to the sermons online. We tend to get lots of people listening online, uh, which is great. Praise the Lord for that, but it's inadequate. It's inadequate next to the experience of gathering with God's people, singing God's praises, receiving God's grace um, in the gathering of his people. So I encourage you to keep coming along. And if you're here last week, you would have known we, uh, we introduced really this, the, the baddie character of the book of Exodus, the, the character of Pharaoh, and he is definitely the, the baddest dude we've met so far in the Bible up until this point. In, in, a, in, a, in a great big lineup of bad dudes, he's the, he's the baddest, all right? And he's, he's the one who has seen the flourishing of the people of Israel in the nation of Egypt, and he's threatened by it. And uh, like so many insecure leaders who have gone before us, his response to feeling threatened is to use his power to oppress and, um, and subjugate these people. And so he first tries to do that um, by putting them to death by work. He just tries to work them to death. And this has a dual purpose because he not only gets to oppress the people uh, and hopefully diminish their numbers, but he also gets all of his public works projects up and going. And, um, and if governments were allowed to do that today, I'm sure they would. And it wasn't so long ago that they were doing that um, in the slave trade. But I digress. That, that plan doesn't work. And we see this, what's going to be a repeated theme throughout the book of Exodus, that the more Pharaoh tries to oppress the people of God, uh, the more God's plans and purposes flourish. So where he tries to work them to death, their numbers actually increase and they become even more numerous. He totally freaks out at this point and he decides that he's going to just put every baby boy to death, uh, like immediately after the delivery. So in chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, we saw last week, the king of Egypt, that's Pharaoh, said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Sifra and Pua, uh, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. And then in verse 22, he uh, goes from just speaking to the Hebrew midwives and then makes an edict, a public announcement. He puts into law that uh, every Hebrew boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. And so he uh, is a maniac. Um, It's quite apparent he is a maniac, and uh, he goes to drastic lengths in order to put down this growing nation of Israel. And um, it's interesting that he says, you know, uh, you know, kill the boys but let the girls live. It almost seems a little bit merciful, but the truth is there's no mercy in it. It's just uh, the fact that Pharaoh just isn't threatened by the girls. Um, boys grow up and turn into warriors who can overthrow governments. Girls, girls, girls can't do anything to you. Girls can't hurt you. Um, in fact, girls can be used. They can be sold. They can be uh, they can be uh, trafficked. Um, they can, uh, you can interbreed with them and in that way completely get rid of a whole nation of people as well. That's been done in the past and is done throughout biblical history and even, um, even in our own history. 
that's one way of overcoming a nation when you want to get rid of them. But at the heart of it, really, Pharaoh's just not threatened by the girls, which is really ironic because between last week, the example of the midwives who refused to do Pharaoh's will and refused to kill baby boys and instead stood up to him and put their own lives on the line because they feared God more than they feared him, between them and the three women we're going to meet today, Pharaoh's plans are completely undermined. And it's the, the courageous and, and very intelligent actions of these three women uh, that undermine Pharaoh's plans. And God uses those women, as he always has done, in the ministry of Jesus and beyond, to achieve his sovereign promises and plans. And so we're going to see a whole lot of irony today, the irony that undermines and ultimately overthrows Pharaoh and his plans. If you've got a Bible in front of you, I want you to keep it open to chapter 2 because we're just going to read a little and chat a little and read a little more and chat a little more, okay? So we're at chapter 2. I'll read the first couple of verses. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. Stop there. That is a tragic sentence. In the context that we know these people are living in, that's a tragic sentence. Every birth of a boy was a tragedy. Every birth of a boy meant the murder of a boy. And so you can imagine being parents, no ultrasound, you've got no idea what the sex of the child's going to be, carrying it to term, giving birth, and then holding your breath, hoping against hope, and perhaps even praying to God that, that this would be a girl so that she could be spared. And in this case, that's not what happens. A boy is born, and you can just imagine the hearts of the parents going to their mouths. When, when is it going to be? When are the Egyptian police going to burst into the house and rip the baby out of our arms and throw him into the most powerful river in the world? When's that going to happen? It's almost impossible for us to come to terms with that, just that level of horror, right? Like, I remember when my boy, he's now three and a half, I remember when he was, um, when, when, when Renee was carrying him, and I remember going to the um, ultrasound and just being totally relaxed about it. Like, there's part of you that's like, all right, I'm, I really want there to be a heartbeat. Um, there's the anxiety around the child still being alive, but when it came to the gender, I was just relaxed because I already had a three-year-old girl who was just the apple of my eye. I had a beautiful wife, and then just a miniature version of my wife. And if I just could have more of those uh, for the rest of my days, that would be a good thing. Snuggling with lots of girls is something that I like to do. So I was like, if, if it's a girl, that's great. And, but if it's a boy, then it's just a little version of me, and, and I'll be able to train him and bring him up and hopefully produce an, an improved version of myself. And so I was completely at ease. And when it came through that, yep, it's definitely a boy, I was stoked. Not so in this situation, right? The boy is born and all bets are off. So let me read that again. And you just you, you hear it with the kind of gravitas that the context requires. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that it was a fine child... She hid him for three 
months. So there mightn't be much in this, but I just I, I wonder that the wording of that, she saw that it was a fine child. It's exactly the same wording as in Genesis 1.31, where God creates everything and he sees that it's good. That's what she has just described herself. She sees this child and it's good. And, and I think the, the parallels there are that God has made creation good and he's made humans in his image. And therefore, every baby born, even before it's born, is precious. It's precious and it has just intrinsic value and worth. This is why, broadly speaking, Christians are against abortion. We believe that every human being is made in God's image and therefore it should be jealously guarded. It should be nourished. It should be invested in. And so Moses' mum sees him. She sees that he is made in the image of God, that is, that he is good. And her response, therefore, is not just to say, well, yeah, take him away or I'll do the job for you. No, she, she makes the decision to hide him. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. If you're a parent here tonight, you, you, just, you imagine doing this, right? The first three months of your kid's life uh, are not given to um, hiding them, right? What they mainly do most of the time is scream, all right? That's, well, they sleep and scream and alternate between the two, all right? It's not, it would not be an easy task if you were living in this culture where everyone's in each other's backyards, right, when, where, where the government can burst in at any time, there's, they don't need any warrants, right? There's no higher authority to appeal to. To keep a child hidden for three months would be an incredible feat. And not only would it be difficult, but it would be so fraught. Just imagine at any time, someone can burst through the door and take this baby boy and have him killed. No, like, no appeals, no questions asked. And so your job is to keep this secret. Albert talked about Brother Andrew and, and smuggling Bibles. I was thinking about Corrie ten Boom and in the, in, again, similar time in history, but during the Second World War and in Holland, out of their own Christian convictions, the ten Boom family chose to hide Jewish people in their house, in their walls, in, in hiding places. Her book is called The Hiding Place, and you should read it. But right throughout the book, you just have this feeling of tension the whole time. Like, what, what happens if the Gestapo come in through the door and someone sneezes as they're hiding in the wall space, right? Like, it's, it's, it's constant tension. And that's exactly how Moses and his family and his parents would have felt as they did their best to hide this boy for three months, but eventually it just gets beyond them. And so verse 3 says this, when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. Just imagine, after having invested in this life for three months, well, nine months plus three months, coming to the point where you as a mother have to make the vessel that you're going to send your baby down the river in. Horrific. The circumstances in which this happens are horrific. Something that's not immediately obvious to us uh, when we read this is, is what I think is 
the most important part of this passage, and that is to understand that what we, the word we translate basket, right, in, in verse 3, um, it's the same word that in Genesis, Genesis we translate as ark, as in Noah's ark. It's the only time it's used outside of that, that passage in Genesis. And so you need to come to terms with the parallels that God is trying to show us here, that just as Noah, that, that his ark was going to save him from the waters of death strewn with drowning bodies, so Moses' ark would save him from the waters of death strewn with drowning baby boys. That there's a parallelism here. And I think what God wants us to know is that as in the case of Noah, so with Moses, God's salvific plans and purposes will prevail, irrespective of the odds irrespective of the forces of evil at work in the world, God will provide. God will, uh, God will uh, prosper his plans and purposes. So we're going to see every time in the, really not just in Exodus, but throughout the scriptures, every time that God's plans and purposes are threatened, God makes a way to keep his covenant promises. And this is exactly what he does with Moses and his ark. Against all of the odds, you send any three-month-old in a basket down the most powerful river in the world, that's not going to end well. It was a last-ditch effort, right? The, the, the lesser of two evils as far as his mum was concerned, and yet God takes this fraught situation and brings about the redemption of his people according to his covenant promises. So this is the point, and we're going to see it. We saw it last week. Really, just I'll spoil it for you. We're going to see this over and over again, the fact that God, in the midst of the horror, is working out his purposes, even in the midst of horrific situation like this, with baby, but bodies of babies strewning the banks of the River Nile. And then if that wasn't amazing enough, and I thought I might get a few more amens during that, but, but listen, if that's not amazing enough for you, the next part is probably even more amazing. The, the way that God turns the purposes of, of Pharaoh on its head, the most powerful man in the world, remember? The, the most powerful man in the world, bar none, Pharaoh, has made up his mind, has made this decree, it cannot be thwarted, it cannot be overruled by any court, and yet God takes his plans and purposes and turns them on their heads in the most incredible way. Let's, let's read it, verse 4 to 6. Moses' sister, that's, we later find out that's Miriam, was uh, standing at a distance to see what would happen to him. She's obviously concerned. Verse 5, then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. So here's a couple of things you need to know from that, like immediately obvious, right? Number one, the irony, the irony 
of Pharaoh's own daughter drawing Moses from the river of death. The irony that it's his own flesh and blood that saves this baby from his seemingly overwhelming decree. You need to know, just if you like comedy, God's favorite kind of comedy is irony. He loves irony, right? And he loves, he loves, he loves writing this story in history such that Pharaoh is made to look dumb through the irony of his own daughter rescuing the saviour of God's people. So it's, first of all, it's ironic, but second of all, you need to notice what is her response, right? She sees the baby, she knows it's a Hebrew, she is the daughter of Pharaoh. And at this point in the story, if you've never read this, you're going, oh no, she's just going to tip him out, right? Call in the crocs. That's not what happens. She has compassion, she, has, she experiences mercy, sympathy. Right, that says that in verse 6, she sees that she's crying and she felt sorry for him. The, the apple has fallen a long way from the tree, right? And, and look, this isn't really the point of the passage, but I feel like it needs to be said that particularly for those of you who have um, grown up with less than ideal circumstances, perhaps less than perfect parents. You need to know that you, you are not beholden to repeat the errors of your parents. You are not fated to walk in the same sinful footsteps as your parents. Now, it's true that our family of origin has a, has a great uh, sort of effect on us and in shaping us, our personality, our character traits, but it's not... It's not fatalistic. It's not the end of the story. And, and certainly one thing for sure that we can see in this text is that where Pharaoh is maniacal and evil and besotted with power, his daughter is merciful and compassionate and responds to need rather than creating it. I, I remember soon after I got married, and really uh, I was pretty immature when I was married. I was, I was pretty young. But for the first time in the first couple of months married to my wife, I realized that there was stuff that my parents got wrong. Up until that point, I just took for granted that they had done everything right, and there, there's kind of emotion mixed up with that, because my dad raised us four kids by himself, and so I was, I was likely to kind of enshrine him and what he'd done. But I came face to face with the fact that he was a sinner, and that I was walking in his footsteps in ways that were unhelpful and ungodly and unfruitful. And, and I remember starkly coming to the conclusion that I had to repent of sin that I had in some way inherited from him. And sometimes we just need to kind of break those bonds that exist between us and our parents when they have led us away from Jesus. And so it's a, it's a beautiful work of grace in my life when God starts to heal some of that brokenness, and it's a beautiful act of grace in, in the life of the daughter of the Pharaoh. She had no right to respond in the way that she did. It would have been perfectly normal for her to do the exact opposite, and yet she responds with mercy. She actually responds with grace. What's next? Verse 7 to 9, Then his sister, that's Moses' sister, 
asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. That's Moses' mum. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. This is, <laughs> these, these, women, these women are just crushing the head of Pharaoh in this passage. These women are being used by God to do remarkable things by him. Right? So, first of all, just, just check out the, the strength and the courage of Miriam in seeing her baby boy being picked up by none other than Pharaoh's daughter and her response out of a love for her brother and a concern uh, for him, she approaches the daughter of Pharaoh, approaches her with courage because the daughter of Pharaoh, just like Pharaoh himself, could have her rubbed out, no problem, just for speaking to her. That's just the way things work, right, in that day and age. And yet she's got the courage not only to approach her, but she's got the wit to say, how about I go and find someone, I'll come up with someone, who can nurse this baby. She goes and gets her own mum. And so, this is, this, is, this is beautiful. The way God works it, he, he, he makes it so that far from Moses' mum having to give up Moses to the waters, he's rescued and then given back to her and she's paid to nurse him. Just... You can't make this stuff up. A lot of nursing mums, by the way, would be happy to receive some income for, for feeding their baby, right? This is what happens. She not only saves him, but then she pays Moses' own mum to be a mum. This is what God can do. God can take the most horrific set of circumstances and turn it. He can turn a king's heart. He can turn... Uh, seemingly irretrievably bad situations for his glory and for our good. That's the promise of Romans 8.28, right? Paul says it without any asterisk, without any but, in your case it might not be. No, he says, God works all things for the good of those who love him and accord according to his purpose. We see that here in the narrative. That's exactly what God does in the midst of the most horrific situation. So the question, naturally, that we need to ask ourselves is, in the midst of our chaos, and it may not be your son being thrown to the crocs, but it might be something that's seemingly just as chaotic in your experience. Maybe it's your, your relationship falling apart, or it's children who are walking away from the faith, or it's a, 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 a seemingly... Um, impossible set of exams coming up at school, or whatever the chaos is in your life, and we will all experience it to varying degrees, you need to be asking the question, if this is true, how is God working this for my good? Sometimes we're afraid to ask that question because we're afraid that we won't see anything there. And God makes no promises to reveal it to us, right? But we ought to be looking constantly, where are God's fingerprints on this chaotic situation? In the midst of the darkness, where is that little flicker of light that shows me that God is in this? God is at work in the midst of even the most horrific circumstances. 
And so he brings him, God brings him via Pharaoh's own daughter back to his mother. And we'll leave it there until next week where we see Moses grown up. We'll see his immediate imperfections and we'll see the way that God works through him even in spite of the sin and evil in his heart. One thing that this book is going to remind us over and over again is that God's plans and purposes will not be thwarted. And you know, right from the beginning, right from that Genesis 3 moment where the world fell and sin entered the world, right from that place, from Satan to Pharaoh through to Herod to Hitler to insert bad guy that is at large today, right, right through human history, there has never been a time where there weren't rulers trying to thwart God's purposes. It's always been the case. It's fascinating to me that just how much, um, how much correlation there is between Moses' story and Jesus' story. Have you noticed that? We normally only ever talk about it this at Christmas, which is a shame, because it's just as remarkable as the story we've read from Exodus 2. But you remember when Jesus is born, just as Pharaoh was a despotic king of his time, King Herod was cut from the same cloth in Jesus' day. And so in Matthew chapter 2 is what we read, the, the Magi uh, have come to the house, and they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. In verse 13, when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child and kill him. And then over in verse 16, it's exactly what happens. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. This is exactly the same thing going on, right? Two despotic kings, both threatened by God's plans and purposes, both hell-bent on killing God's chosen, appointed servant who would bring in redemption for his people. Ironically enough, where Moses escapes out of Egypt, Jesus escapes to Egypt. But both men decree the death of all of the young boys, Hebrew boys, in the region. And in both cases, God's plans and purposes prevail in spite of the power of these evil men. He will keep his covenant. And all the way through human history, whether it's Satan in the garden, whether it's the evil in people's hearts in the flood, whether it's Pharaoh and his oppressive regime, or it's Herod, or it's Hitler, or it's anyone up until today, everyone who has tried to oppose and thwart God's purposes has been turned down. We need to remind ourselves of this because it is easy for us as we soak in 24 hours of news constantly, and most of it bad, it's easy for us to start wavering in our confidence about who's in charge. 
Maybe, maybe the throne slipped a little bit. Maybe, maybe, maybe Satan's landing a few punches on Jesus' chin. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's kind of up in the air. And what the Scriptures want to remind us over and over again is that God will not be moved from his throne. He sees all things from the beginning to the end, and he will protect his plans and purposes. He will keep his covenant such that, and I love this, Psalm 2 tells us God's response to leaders and rulers who threaten his sovereignty, right? Psalm 2. Why do the nations rebel and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let us tear off their chains and free ourselves from their restraints, they say. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. You need to know that that's God's response when powerful little men try to overthrow his plans. He laughs. He ridicules. Or it's not as good as Scripture, but my little haiku version of that, you can memorize this. The kings of the world pull their hatred to mock God, the king of kings, Laughs. That's his response. He is not one bit anxious. He is not threatened. He is not moved. He doesn't flinch. He's not searching for a plan B. His plans and purposes will be worked out, and therefore God's people can just drop their shoulders a little bit. They can remember God is on the throne. And because he's on the throne, even in the midst of our chaos and our pain, we can trust him, we can praise him, and we can pray to him. I'm going to do that for us now. Let's bow our heads. Father, we trust you. We trust you with this. We trust that you are on the throne, and no man or woman, however powerful, however evil, however hell-bent, on destroying your church, on destroying your covenants, none of them will prevail against you. You are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. You are on the throne. I pray as we go through this wonderful book that we would be constantly reminded of that great truth. That even as we identify with the people of Israel in their suffering, that we'd look to you as our deliverer. We thank you for your work of redemption through the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he is coming again to make all things new and all things right. And in the meantime, we trust you, that you are working all things for our good. I pray that as a church, we would be the kind of people who can comfort one another in our suffering, bear one another's burdens, weep with those who weep, and always remind one another of the truth, that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We trust you. Father, now as we stand and sing your praises, remind us that we sing because you are worthy. You always have been worthy of our worship. I pray you'd be stirring in our hearts, stir up our affections for you, increase our trust in you, give us a peace that passes all understanding. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.